welcome to Future Out Loud from the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at Arizona State University. I'm Heather Ross. Together with Andrew Maynard, we bring you conversations with experts on and off campus where we think out loud about our collective future. In today's episode, Andrew and I sat down with our colleague, Deborah Strumsky, and we talked about a wide range of things. Uh, Deborah is an economist by her original training. Now she spends her time modeling innovation systems using complex systems approaches and a variety of techniques, and she is so animated. Um, I think that you'll hear that in the audio, even though you weren't here with us during the recording session to see the very exciting and animated hand gestures that we got to see here in the room. Um, we'll put links to Deborah's bio and and some of her papers and things like this in the show notes. Um, and you can find those show notes on in a variety of places, including our websites at sfis.asu.edu forward slash future out loud. Also, riskinnovation.asu.edu forward slash future out loud. You can subscribe to the Future Out Loud podcast, of course, on iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud or Google Play. You can tweet at us at Future Out Loud or you can leave us comments on our Facebook page. You could even like us on Facebook. You'll find us at Future Out Loud. As always, please tell your friends and thank you for listening. Hey, Debbie. Hello. Good morning. Hi, Andrew. Hi. Thank you, Debbie, for coming here. Do you like Debbie or Deborah? I should have fine. asked you because you people refer to you in all of the ways. <laughs> Debbie is. <laughs> <laughs> so every time I get to see you lecture, it is on par with oh, what is the man who does the epidemiological and like the graphs that move and the bubble charts that oh, move? Do you know who I'm yes, talking about? Yes. It's like. Hans or Jens or yes, something. Yes, Hans, Hans. Yes. And yeah. so it is that level of exciting. So I'm so excited <laughs> that you're here. So we're talking data. Data. Oh, yes. Lots of data. What yes. are the words that you use to describe what you do? So I use, um, actually it's, I use complex systems and I've gotten this, developed this toolkit from complex systems, which is really what it is, is we will steal, beg, borrow methods from any discipline mm -hmm. that will allow us to analyze data and to understand systems um, in as many ways as possible to shed insights so that we can understand better and model these systems better. Okay. Um, and any specific systems or it's any system well, game? Well, you know, quite frankly, the, a lot of low-hanging fruit has been analyzed to death and you're not learning new things from them. So mm -hmm. ideally what you want is um, in complex systems, we tend to focus on systems that have many, many parts, small parts, that when they interact, and often this happens with network type right. network mm -hmm. systems, mm -hmm. yep. that can produce very unpredictable outcomes. Or yep. if you don't understand how those systems behave, they appear very 
unpredictable. But if you can model these systems properly and understand how interactions can percolate through a system, then they actually aren't so surprising. So, so I must say, complex systems both fascinate me and frustrate me because so many people act as if they're dealing with a very predictable system and not a complex system. Um, and so I, this is probably pushing us way away from where no. your work is, but we can see whether we can pull it back. Yeah. But I, I'm really interested with what's happening at the moment with science and technology and society, which really is a complex system, yeah. in that seemingly trivial things happening in one place can lead to profound and unexpected events in other places. Um, and the thing that always blows me away with complex systems is that everything can look completely secure and normal and predictable mm. until all of a sudden you fall off a cliff and it's not. Um, mm -hmm. yeah. And so the mm -hmm. challenge is how do you actually get some sort of prescience of where that cliff's coming and how to avoid it? Thresholds, um, phase transitions, cascades, you know, all the, or, or even quite frankly, heavy tail distributions. All of them will produce these outcomes that when we observe them, we go, oh my gosh, where did that come from? So, so I can imagine now we have some listeners that are geeking out over oh, those. Right. And other, yeah, other, other, other listeners are thinking, what, what? was that? What? Are, are we speaking English like, still? Are, are yes. these beavers yeah. with heavy tails <laughs> right. talking about? Like, what does that even mean? Yeah. <laughs> okay, so a lot of the world we see in a lot of the natural world is governed by normal distributions. So our height, you know, you, if mm -hmm. you take a random sample of 100 people, mm -hmm. them, you get this nice bell-shaped curve where most people are within a very small range, right? Mm -hmm. right? I'm but at the end. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but a lot of distributions that are very interesting to study are ones where there's not a dominant um, center behavior, mm -hmm. that a lot of the weight of the distribution or an unusual number of observations in a sample mm -hmm. are way out in the extremes of the distribution. Right. Okay. Now, when that happens, it means the probability mm -hmm. that what seems to us to be an unlikely outcome occurs is far greater. Okay. And mm -hmm. the tipping point for observing those, um, they're just going to happen a lot more frequently. Okay. Right. And so, and a lot of what we're looking at in climate change now mm -hmm. is about systems, so with some of the ice pack and some of the behaviors now that we're looking at the Arctic and weather effects, are distributions that were largely normal, mm -hmm. we're rejecting that they're coming from the same distributions. Right. The generating functions, the processes that create these are being governed by new forms of distributions, oh, which okay. means unusual events occurring right. are going to happen more extreme and more often. So okay. what I also find fascinating is, I, for I don't know, decades, centuries, we've sort of used this normal distribution, this bell-shaped curve as mm -hmm. a way of explaining variation. But the temptation, especially if you're naive, is to always then go one step further and assume everything is characterized just by that mean, that, right. that, that average, yeah. and forget actually there are things happening at the edges oh, of the yeah. So that's where you're sort of, that's where you're blindsided, right. with, with things that are important have significance, and yet because they don't sit at the mean, you sort of the median, you sort of forget mm -hmm. about them. Yeah, and, and it's interesting to think that, you know, we, we are their first moment, the mean or the average of something. Mm -hmm. um, we like to describe those in day-to-day -day language about how that goes, but if you're, if you're a graduate student, you're in education, you're an analyst, mm -hmm. you're analyzing data, it's all about the second and third moments. It's about right. the variance and the kurtosis because it's really dis describing the variance in behavior. Mm -hmm. It's about the unusual, the change, the dynamics. Yeah. Right. And that's where the interesting stuff happens. And I think um, 
that that's also where a lot of the fun in the analysis is. Of course, yes, even, yes. Even if it might be um, so, bad and, for humanity. And so, you <laughs> so are you actually doing anything on climate change? Because that, that's an interesting complex system. Well, I'm doing a lot of work on energy. So that's okay, where I'm right. doing so the energy systems. Is, yes. We're trying to look at how long and where and when and under what policies will photovoltaics and wind become cheaper mm -hmm. and 2013 and 2014 were as, as forecasted mm -hmm. were the tipping points for those oh, okay and so now what's one so for me this has been a very bright spot in talking with students in sustainability about talking about climate change in um, the online forums I'm, I don't, I'm on has been a lot of people that are very interested in these technologies are very scared mm -hmm. given the change of administration and the people that have been S scared in the they they first of all saw suddenly a change in people accepting mm -hmm. um, renewables and really sort of seeing that expanding and now they're worried that we're going to go back to fossil fuels well yeah because the, yeah. the, the, there's yeah. been a real so actually right the day after the election a lot of students in the school of sustainability mm -hmm. are like oh my gosh I've, I've been here for two years mm -hmm. I thought this was going to be a job I saw a path <laughs> right. forward yeah, yeah, yeah. oh my god have I made a terrible mistake sorry you know? M Mr. Trump sort of removing jobs yeah the I, he, he I mean, was, this is a, these students were genuinely yeah. scared oh, they were sure. genuinely scared so sure. we had a session for them and I said look for me sustainability is never about doing someone a favor mm -hmm. it's never about doing the right thing if you depend on humanity to always do the right thing mm -hmm. um, you've got a problem my training is, is economics I, I was okay. going to ask yeah. I was gonna, economic, I'm an economist, economist aren't you you know so, it's, it's, so, the, you so know. It's, it's all about what you can get and what you can give yeah so yeah. we don't we don't depend on altruism right it's not saying that altruism doesn't occur uh -huh. it's just that you cannot model a system around it right, right. let's right. assume the worst case behavior mm -hmm. and then see what happens mm -hmm. from there Mm -hmm. And so in this instance, I've been like, look, it's, if you're going to really have an economy based on sustainability, mm -hmm. it's got to be about the firm's choices. And mm -hmm. firms actually can be considered, and this is also something that really gets lost. If you are a CEO of a firm, mm -hmm. if you do not make the profit-optimizing choice for your company, you could be held personally liable, exactly. you could be yes. sued. The, the yes. fiduciary yes. responsibility. They have yes. a responsibility. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And if they don't, they can their houses can be taken. Mm -hmm. Their kids tr their kids' educational funds can be mm -hmm. taken. Yep. So the corporations, it is not they have to do that. Right. Right? So we don't want a finger point. So under what conditions can you make the sustainable choices, the right choices, even for these CEOs? Right. And the great news is that 2013 and 2014 mm -hmm. were finally the years where wind and solar are now the optimizing choice financially. So it makes business okay. sense. It makes yes. business sense. Yeah. And that nothing that's, that the only thing that they can do in Washington now mm -hmm. is put s additional subsidies onto fossil fuels to save them. Which is also a tragedy right. if you are in coal country mm -hmm. because you can't be <clears throat> saved. And mm -hmm. that the resources that are being pulled to try to um, help these miners mm -hmm. actually should be done in retraining and placing them in uh, giving them the mobility mm -hmm. they right. need geographically and across their so, skill sets. So yeah. just as a matter of interest with that so you do hear arguments that say yep. actually you look at coal there's mm -hmm. a lot of mm -hmm. coal down there there it's, is um, it's just that we've been told that we shouldn't be using it um, where do the economic arguments come in are we now saying that it's not viable in long on in the long term because these other sources are more economically viable um, or is this is there still a little bit of the politics there of, of saying that we ought to be more renewable than non-renewable? 
Well, right, there, there are some issues when you look at how the power grid works. So right now, the cheapest, and this is not everywhere, it's still evolving, it depends on where you are. Solar is better in Phoenix of than course. where I'm from in Maine. Uh -huh. you know? okay. <laughs> That's a shocker. Sorry, I know, <laughs> I know. Um, but on the other hand, right now, coastal wind in Maine mm -hmm. is, we are like the Saudi Arabian mm -hmm. wind, mm -hmm. you know, off the coast of New England yeah. is one of the best spots for wind. Mm -hmm. So. You can do that. Now, the problem is what happens if the wind is slow at night because you don't mm -hmm. have the convection mm -hmm. going on in the atmosphere. When the sun goes down mm -hmm. in Phoenix, that's not great for solar. So we've got to still deal with when the wind isn't blowing and when the sun isn't shining. Right. Natural gas is the thing there. But what you've seen actually with fossil fuels, both in oil is and in coal, is we have a lot of coal and we have a lot of oil, mm -hmm. but it's not the same kind of oil and coal that we had 80 years ago or right. even 50 years ago. Right. Oh. This is much lower grade, lower mm -hmm. quality coal. Oh. This is much lower. So <laughs> when we talk about we have a lot of oil, a lot of what we're talking about is very low-grade oil. It's heavy, high-sulfur You're crude. actually talking distributions oh. again. It's, yes, It's not absolutely. all the same. There are it's not all the same. Yes. So actually, one yes. of the things in my energy class that we just did was, how can we have, we've almost doubled in the past 20 years, mm -hmm. the reserves of, fossil, of oil. Mm -hmm. uh -huh, uh -huh. But the price has not behaved as, it, it hasn't reduced in the same way. Mm -hmm. So how is that happening? Well, how can we have so much more reserves mm -hmm. and the price not falling? The price actually, in, in terms of a long term, is still going mm -hmm. up. In any one year or any one time period, it's up or down. Whoa. But overall, it's going up. It's because you've got much lower grade quality. It's much more expensive to refine. Uh -huh. There's only a handful of refineries that can mm -hmm. handle that low grade material. Uh -huh. And you can't, it's not as easy to use in all these different okay, reserves. Okay, so I have a dumb question. I'm full of them, um, the dumb questions. So the, I thought the price of oil dropped such that many wells shut down. These are the temporal. These so in any sh very short period of time, mm -hmm. um, and by that I'm saying quarterly, annually. But this is like within the last couple of years. Yes, but it's gone up and down. It wasn't Has that it? long ago. Yeah, it was just like two or three years ago. And it also depends on where you are. Prices uh -huh. vary by place, uh -huh. but. If you compare it to like what were the prices in the 1970s, what were the price in the 1980s, 1990s, we're looking at very long run trends. You get a lot of noise. So actually this is a, an interesting thing. So, and this gets back to some of the basic right. research we were discussing. Commodities versus technologies. Mm -hmm. So let's look at commodities. If you take almost any commodity, coal, the price of coal, once you control for the rate of inflation, mm -hmm. has not changed since 1850. I saw you present that. It is flat. <coughs> it is yes. a flat line. Now, in any one year, mm -hmm. it can be up, it can be down. Okay. And as you can see, the same thing with oil. Okay. In any one year, it can be up, it can be down. But once you adjust for inflation, right, it's flat. flat. Okay. Okay. So that means that you don't have a lot of levers, a lot of ways to influence the price of the commodity. Okay. Now, overall, Mm -hmm. When you look at technologies, and this is why wind and solar are so important, and other renewables as well, is we can, technological change influences those technologies and mm -hmm. drives down mm -hmm. the cost of those technologies because you've got this huge supply chain. Mm -hmm. Frankly, when it comes to coal, okay, you go and you dig a big hole if you're strip mining, mm -hmm. and you just pull the stuff out of the ground, and right. even though I don't want to minimize the technology involved in burning coal, ultimately you mm -hmm. put it in a furnace and you burn it. Right. Uh -huh. Okay, that's only so many steps. Right, But right. the steps involved in producing a photovoltaic panel sure. are many. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. And any one chain, if you want, some people can think of this, it's a bit naive, but as a supply chain. That is a huge web mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of 
items that go in technologies that are uh-huh. bundled together to create a solar panel. Sure. Any one of those things improves and the entire that that is a multiplicative effect on the cost of a solar panel. Okay. Right. I okay. I actually I hadn't thought of that. So now you've got complexity just within those specific forms Technologies, of Technologies, yeah. yeah. So that is a gigantic network. And mm. the one when we were doing photovoltaic panels, that web had 30,000 nodes in it. Uh-huh. That's a what? lot of points of influence. And all you need is a handful of them multiplying yeah. within one another by yeah. interacting. Uh-huh. Multiplicative effects that are driving down this cost at an exponential rate. So just look at Look at that a little bit more for a minute. So I can see how if you've got a complex web like mm-hmm. that, you've got many ways of actually influencing that so prices right. get driven down. Mm-hmm. But you've also got the potential for vulnerabilities. Mm-hmm. So imagine within that web you've got one key component or one key material, say it's a rare earth material mm-hmm. uh, sourced from mm-hmm. China, mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you discover that trade relations with China have been disrupted. Right. Uh, Surely then you have a sort of an outsized impact on that complex web. Okay, uh, actually in network dynamics that vulnerability, mm-hmm. um, and, and this is Metcalfe's law actually mm-hmm. if you look at this, driven to the absolute extreme, mm-hmm. every node is a single element and it's only produced by one one place or one person or one node in that network, right? right? And if you knock that out, the idea is you've removed that critical node and the entire network falls apart, the Mm -hmm. the edge density collapses. Right. Uh And in a static network, Mm -hmm. that would be true. Mm -hmm. Except we are, when you think about this network, we have this picture, maybe we've seen them on magazines or whatever, we see this gigantic graph with all these colored nodes Mm -hmm. and stuff. That's a static picture. The whole point of the technological change is what that node is, is changing all the time. It adapts. And one of the multiplicative effects is substitutes. Yep, yep, Yep. redundancies. So it may be a few years ago it was copper or we were Mm -hmm. putting in... Um, we etch chips one way. Now, mm-hmm. now it's it's going to be graphene. Sure. Right. Yes. Screw copper. It's a terrible conductor. We're not so going to use it anymore. So that was the, if I'm not mistaken, the manganese story uh, in World War II with dry cell um, development, mm-hmm. right? Yes. Yep. That like two, there are three places that there are manganese in the whole world, right? And mm-hmm. two of them were under Axis power control, yep. and the third was. Montana, maybe? Mm-hmm. So, like, Montana all of a sudden became the key to the Allied, you know, I success. should just say at this point, people should fact check these because we can't be absolutely sure. No, this is a podcast, so we right. can say things and say, I think, maybe, yes. and because we inflect so deeply, you know, people understand. Right. This is what I've learned from Ezra Klein. No, but actually, it's, on, on the batteries, you're absolutely mm. right. Like, this rare earth mineral thing is a big deal. Yes. But... But there are substitutes coming about. Right, right. right. And but, that's the whole point. And that puts another layer onto the complexity of this web. You've got the whole um, technology innovation um, movement, which I, actually I know nothing of the economics. I, well, I actually I know a little bit you of the economics things. of this, but, yeah. but, but it's still something of a mystery. So I can understand the market in terms of mm-hmm. supply and demand. But then you've got this, say, government investment in R&D, which then mm-hmm. sort of um, leads to new innovations where you do get substitutions. So yep. instead of using indium tin oxide for screens, for instance, you begin to look at carbon nanotubes or graphene yep. or mm-hmm. other materials. Yeah. So that's where you build the resilience of the web. But from an economics perspective, how do you then factor in that investment in R&D, which may or may not lead to something useful? Well, actually, one thing that's really scary is when we look at the rate of R&D spending, not necessarily by the government because you would see a very different picture there. Mm-hmm. But when you look at 
total firm level R&D. Mm -hmm. That is going through the roof. Um, so aggregate R&D spending. Um, and yet the number of innovations, and not all innovations are created equal, um, those are going down. So if you look yeah. at the, if, so we've got a couple of forces going on here. Mm -hmm. We're spending more money to get each innovation. Mm -hmm. Right. And each innovation is yielding less marginal benefit. Okay, so the okay. return on our investment is actually... Uh, so the return so, so on the investment is falling. The, this, oh. is, this is actually shocking and controversial. Very. Because you've got this, this whole swell of science advocacy saying we're not spending enough on R&D, mm -hmm. we've got to spend more, more, more. Um, because, of course, everybody knows that we get a great return on mm -hmm. investment on it. But now you're saying, actually, we're spending more and we're getting less for that money. Okay, so there's two, and two things are driving that. Now, this is where my research is, this is fairly new, and I don't know if anybody will agree with it, and who knows when the final, final, final paper is done, this, maybe I'll change my mind. But right now, that's our addendum, that's my caveat. What we're looking at is there are two forces driving this. One is that... If you look at innovation on a global scale, mm -hmm. and if you look even on a national, but at the national and global levels, mm -hmm. people spending more, the marginal benefit falling, mm -hmm. and that spells doomsday for us, right? Mm -hmm. Slow rates of technological change, oh my gosh, what's gonna happen? We're all gonna die. And we'll have no cures for anything, right? Mm -hmm. Okay, that's, the problem is that we have seen the rise of China and India, mm -hmm. who, they are young economies really kind of entering this science race in a way that the type of inventions that they were able to create were very much at the scale of what they were producing at the time. Mm -hmm. So these were what you could say not high impact inventions. Mm -hmm. They were great for driving down cost and really that was what they were mm -hmm. meant to do. A lot of the innovating they were doing were about making much more efficient processes, right. driving down the cost of goods, mm -hmm. things like this. But they weren't doing some of the real basic breakthrough science on average sure. right so but it was really cheap to buy that labor mm -hmm. right mm -hmm. to do that so the marginal return to dollar invested was great because if i have a firm with a dollar to invest mm -hmm. and i can invest it in say well i can invest it in, in, in you over here and i can pay you an enormous amount of money and i might get really deep research but it's very high risk mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it might be fundamental breakthrough but you're gonna have to it's gonna take a lot of long time and it's highly uncertain right, right. but then I can give it to maybe a, a f small firm in China or a worker in China or a worker in India mm -hmm. well what I'm gonna get is an almost guaranteed improvement it might be right. small uh -huh. but I am very highly certain it's gonna get me a 1.2 percent reduction in my cost right. Got it. With, with high certainty sure mm -hmm. so the global pool of money that moves around and invests goes Oh my gosh, the return to dollars invested mm -hmm. in R&D are so great, I'm going to buy a lot of this research. Got it. So what we see was a lot of low-risk investing with very high return mm -hmm. in terms of profitability, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. cost structures, etc. Yep. Okay. Now, so you've got right now just the return to the dollar of investment on R&D mm -hmm. driving these low-level, low-impact mm -hmm. breakthroughs. Mm -hmm. So the question is, well, if now India and China are getting much better. And quite frankly, in, in, in photovoltaics, they're doing some pretty cool stuff. In a number of fields, they're, they're doing better than we are. Okay. Okay, so they're now, they, they were kind of this awkward little tween, and now mm -hmm. they're, they're a pretty sophisticated teenager about to go off to college, and they're really getting good at basic science. Uh -huh. Okay, and that, they're going to continue to get com 
better and better and better and they're going to become more competitive and the prices are rising they're equalizing which is great okay now the question is stepping back going okay the money will flow now more flatly across the globe mm-hmm. because they're getting better prices are up so how do we get some of those innovations that are not these kind of these have higher marginal benefit right well one thing that we've shown in our, my research was that and i think this is the coolest thing out of my work when you look at where really radical disruptive things came from mm-hmm. they did not come from investments in the technology that was trying to be advanced itself right right so this is like if you were a lab trying to make a better machine or trying to improve an electric motor the really big breakthroughs came from some other field yep. where somebody was working on an invention and went oh this is kind of a funny thing yeah ah, i'm i'm what a neat thing to know the magic of cross pollination yes. right and this is but but it but really it has huge implications sure mm-hmm. so it means that as we become more siloed and specialized mm-hmm. it means that our focus became narrower and the likelihood again these network effects yes. the yes, network yes. connections aren't there because we have been siloing our mm-hmm. discipline so narrowly yeah. that we aren't paying attention to these other areas mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and the ability for that information to come across disciplines has actually been driven down but but yeah. it also sounds you're talking about almost intellectual ossification so you you cut yourself off you become mm-hmm. very conservative yeah. when you're own within your own discipline which is yeah. something we see in academia oh my gosh people yeah. get so caught up in their their little clique of about sort of five people maybe right, a few right. more that they just can't see the world outside right. which is why somebody else sort of comes along at 100 miles an hour goes past them mm-hmm. and actually makes the breakthroughs that this little clique have been trying right. to make and have never been able to see the way right. to do well, it well that's is it franz Johansson, that's his whole thing, that mm. these intersections are where innovation happens. And yes. this was the whole thinking of the Medici family, right? Is that they brought all of these different fields and thinkers together in one place, and that's mm. why Italy, you know, ruled yep. innovation for so long. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So what scares me is like, so one thing that's going on now is, and you probably heard a lot about this in the new cancer initiative that they're doing mm-hmm. um, the idea is that it's they're going to create the, the network yeah and yeah. this is where they're they're creating these networks and they're forcing people to work together yep. mm-hmm. and concentrate on specific models mm-hmm. that they think have the best benefit mm-hmm. now this means what are they going to get they're going to get what we've got what we've seen in this global economy with the refinement type Right. of invention they're going to get improvements but they're going to get that 1.2% percent it's going to be incremental incremental, yes. this incremental yeah. improvement they're not mm. they close off mm. the opportunity mm-hmm. for those things outside because they have literally calcified the network yeah, yep. Yep. yeah. and that opportunity for things to come from the outside it literally blocked by design right. right for this cancer research and that actually that initiative really scared me if you're a company and you really want the breakthroughs so in my data 76% of disruptive inventions came from outside. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, that's, that's a right. huge percentage. And that mm-hmm. means well if I want to get these outcomes, A, I have to be willing to invest in some high risk stuff. Mm-hmm. So I have to be willing to say, okay, I don't know what's going to happen with this. And maybe it's not that it's even going to solve my problem, mm-hmm. but it might be transformational globally, right? right? Okay? Knowing that maybe I get something for my company, mm-hmm. but it could actually put me in a completely different industry and I could disrupt things radically. Mm-hmm. 
okay, number one. Number two, I have to allow my scientists to be more interdisciplinary, to actually yes. have the time and the yeah. language mm -hmm. to interact with scientists from other disciplines. So, so That's this is, huge. So this is very similar to what we talk about in risk innovation around creativity. And one of my big things is we actually teach people how not to be creative. We factor creativity yeah. out mm -hmm. of the process, mm -hmm. yes. which means you get that incremental um, pro um, progress. You sort of build minutely on what other people have done, but you don't have that imagination to see how the world could be totally different. Right. Exactly. And somehow we've got to bring that into the process, whether it's research, whether it's innovation, um, in multiple different fields. Mm -hmm. So if you want to minimize risk, you stick with the refinement. Right. Yeah. You stick with the yeah. incremental innovation. It's uh -huh. safe. Yes. Yeah. Okay, and if you want, but if you want something disruptive, you've got to be willing to take the gamble. Now, how do you do that as a matter of policy? Right. Where every yeah. taxpayer is going, you did what with my money? Yeah. Because right. <laughs> right. you know, you're just like, wow, you invested how much and that failed? It's like, right. well, look what we learned, and it, it created a pathway for yeah. things that you can never predict. This is a problem. So the fact that we don't publish failures and we don't celebrate failures as a process of learning. I mean, I still think that there should be the Journal of Negative Findings. Like that we need that. Right. We yeah. really need that. It's a huge, huge, huge problem huge. in health. Yeah. I mean, oh my goodness yep. in healthcare. Holy cow. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so this is very troubling to me. It it is. It is. But but more generally than that. So we we're, we're locked into this this machine mm -hmm. um, as researchers that, that tells us how we do things sort of what we do in order to succeed and yeah. it's very hard to get outside mm -hmm. that machine and sometimes fail right. or sort of have constructive it's not fail it's no, learned so, so thank it's you yeah. that, that's it's what i was trying to get failed. yes it's and yeah. if you aren't failing you aren't learning anything yeah yep. i i absolutely agree yes but that's part of that creativity as well that that ability to play to sort mm -hmm. of see what works, what doesn't, not to be too constrained, but then that training and that ability. So when a little bright spark comes up yeah. that you didn't expect, you can actually nurture it and grow it and take advantage of yeah. it. Yeah. And this is actually um, <laughs> coming full circle here. Why the complex systems work? Right. Again, because we, some people call it complex adaptive systems mm -hmm. or complexity analysis or any of this. Actually, those of us who are in that little tight community up there don't use that. We say we're interdisciplinary scientists. Yep. Really? And that we spend a lot of time trying to learn the language of other scientists so we can have cogent, meaningful conversations. Yes. Um, which yeah. means that I, when I'm doing work on price equation models, I have had to learn a lot of evolutionary biology, which was horrifyingly hard when I started. <laughs> <laughs> Genotype, phenotype, I don't know what the difference is. You know, it takes, yeah. takes time, you've got to really put in the effort to do it well. And I have, I mean, once you drank that Kool-Aid of interdisciplinary mm -hmm. work, mm -hmm. you never want to go back. Right. But for young scholars that are thinking going forward, here's the problem, what do we teach people to do? If you are publishing in a journal, mm -hmm. we teach people how to veto, mm -hmm. right? We don't give them right to be creative. We teach people how to veto, whether you're on a an NSF funding board, uh -huh. you know, if you're a reviewer for the NSF right. or the yes. NIH, or whether you're for a journal. Mm -hmm. If you are putting forth an interdisciplinary article, you've got to almost be twice as good yep. because yeah. you're going to have two people, let's just say two disciplines you're mm -hmm. drawing on. Oh, yeah. Let's say biology and economics, hypothetically. Mm -hmm. The biologists are going to go, well, we don't do that in biology. Mm -hmm. I veto this. Yeah. We're not going to publish this. This is 
garbage. They have no idea and, what they're and talking about. And the economists are exactly the same. And the yeah. economists is I know. Exactly. The economists are going to pull the trigger even well, faster. Well, we ran into this with a robotics proposal that we, we did, did yes. last year. It, it is incredibly hard it's to really, convince yeah. people to fund innovative cross-disciplinary research. Right. Yep. But that's where the disruptive stuff is. Yes. Yeah. So it's and it's not about bad people. It's about a real structural problem. How do you balance creativity, which is highly mm-hmm. uncertain and very risky, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with um, a fiscal obligation yeah. of what we fund and a responsibility to make sure that garbage work isn't just being put through mm-hmm. in the name of interdisciplinary work right. because people get sloppy. Yes. And we don't want to be careless and thoughtless and casual. It's yes. got to be well executed right. and it's got to be rigorous and balancing these two is a genuine structural problem and so this comes back to the work you do around data and data analysis and making sure things are data-based evidence-based uh, so one of the big challenges we face if you look at this country with policy around okay. science and technology funding um, there's this perennial debate about how much you put into basic research mm-hmm. where you've no idea what the return on investment is and nobody can come up with a to my knowledge, a good solid economic model for where you draw the line of what's too much, what's enough. But presumably that's got to be based on data somehow. But also what really intrigues me here is if our model is wrong in terms of how we make decisions on how much we invest in basic research or what type of research is done, how do we build alternative models which again are again based on data or evidence that we can then use? So one thing that absolutely horrifies me and as a reviewer in articles, um, well, so this whole data science, mm-hmm. big data thing that everybody's so hyped up about mm-hmm. is absolutely terrifying because <laughs> mm-hmm. we have made a lot of very complex analytical tools very easy to use. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yes. And there are two really big problems with that. It made people stop thinking about where is this data coming from uh-huh. and how yep. biased is it? Yes, okay. And people yes, have stopped yes. thinking about that. Where is it? Is this all um, so with a lot of the stuff coming out of social media? This is utterly and completely biased data. The self selection bias is mind boggling. Yeah. It means you can't make any inferences on it. Mm-hmm. None. It's useless. I don't care how complex your model is. Right. If your data ha- is biased, forget it. Right. right. Just, just yep. trash it. I don't care how pretty the pictures and visualizations mm-hmm. are. And number two, again, making these tools easy to use means that anybody gets out there and uses them. But they have absolutely no domain experience on what they're talking yeah, about. Right, mm-hmm. right. So that's a really big problem. Now that can to some degree be overcome by really good collaborations yes. between people who might not have the time or the cap- capacity mm-hmm. to do the data systems but are really steeped in the discipline. Mm-hmm. And people mm-hmm. who do have the capacity to run those models, but they have to be able to work very closely together yes. and, and they have to be patient with one so, another. So, yes. so I actually think we should be teaching um, critical approaches as well. Yep. So, so I do think that um, you can have people from very different disciplines yep. be given new tools and start mm-hmm. using Absolutely. them, but they need that ability to critically work out what is appropriate, what is inappropriate. That's right. Um, and so I, I was about to say, I think this happens to all of us when we hit 50, we begin to get very sort of cynical about what people can do these days, but I think I became a cynic at about 20. <laughs> <laughs> But, but, I, but, I, but again, as a physicist, I remember the, co- the conversations around using computers to plot and analyze data. Mm-hmm. Um, and I actually felt very strongly at the time, and my supervisor did, 
that you gain something from actually having a data set that you hand plot mm -hmm. where you are forced to understand what those data actually mean and yep. what the relationships mean in a way that you completely miss when yeah. you shove everything onto a computer and it comes out with pretty pictures. Well, that's what I always, as a healthcare provider, that's right. always my thing is, okay, that's great, but, talk to me about the individual. But, but the thing is, if you are trained to actually go back to first principles and understand the basics of what mm -hmm. the data mean, mm -hmm. where they come mm -hmm. from, yep. where they're good, where they're bad, how you deal with them, mm -hmm. you can then begin to use the more complex tools. Yes, but if you yeah. miss the first bit, you're lost in the second bit. Sure. Yeah. Or even just how, I mean, I think one thing in economics, um, where, how was this collected? Yes. Um, yes. You know, yeah. something as simple as, is this a sample or is this a census? Um, well, <laughs> that can get blurry what? when you dig into the details. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and we should be able to, to teach Something this. so yeah. simple. Yes. Yeah. yes. You know, and, and self-selection mm -hmm. bias in this, this age of technology is, mm -hmm. is massive. So is it fair to say, because you know I love a platitude, um, that complexity is nothing without simplicity? <laughs> actually, yes. Thank you. Actually, under the logo uh, at, at SFI, they have this um, complexity only emerges from simplicity. Oh, oh there we are. Yes. There you go. Awesome. Well, we um, could talk to you for hours and days and weeks and months and years. So let's continue this conversation. I a hope we will. Yes, but in the meantime, we've got, wow, a lot of work to do. We have to totally reform the educational system and like completely, right? Yes, yeah. yes, completely. as well, and the research system yeah. and everything else. So, right. But we have the answer, so it's all good. That's right, we have the answer. You have anyway, yes. All right, thanks, Debbie. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. For more where that came from, including our undergraduate and graduate programs, Check out the School for the Future of Innovation in Society at sfis.asu.edu. Future Out Loud is produced with the support of the School for the Future of Innovation in Society and the Risk Innovation Lab at Arizona State University. Mark Van Hare created our music. Ana Lopez is our production assistant. Please subscribe to Future Out Loud on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Please tell your friends and let us know what you think on Facebook and Twitter at Future Out Loud.